Hello and welcome to the Snowbrains podcast, where it's my job to interview the most intelligent people in the snow sports industry and pass their fascinating knowledge onto you, our listeners. I'm your host, Miles Clark. I'm a professional free skier, a mountain guide, an Alaska heli ski guide, a UC Berkeley molecular cell biology graduate, the founder and CEO of Snowbrains, and I once had a real job. I really did. I worked in a cubicle in downtown Oakland, California on the 18th floor of the state building as a research associate for the Department of Health Services Occupational Health Branch during college and just after college. My absolute low point was showing up so hungover to work one day after a big Cal ski team party that I simply crawled under my desk, curled up in the fetal position and pulled my chair in so it would look like my desk was vacant and just passed out. My boss's cubicle was adjacent to mine and he definitely noticed my pathetic debauchery. He simply slid the chair out, pulled me up onto my feet and kindly told me I should go home. I was the worst office worker. My guest today is Dan Egan. Dan has been in 13 Warren Miller movies and was a big part of the extreme skiing movement in the 90s. He has literally skied all over the entire globe. In 2001, Powder Magazine called Dan one of the most influential skiers of our time. In 2006, Dan was inducted into the U.S. Skiing and Snowboarding Hall of Fame. Dan was a founding member of the North Face Extreme Team with Scott Schmidt. Dan is the author of 30 Years in a White Haze, a book about ski bumming the world and skiing some of the most unique locations on Earth, including the Berlin Wall, the Middle East, Yugoslavia, Romania, and more. Hello, Dan. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. How are you? I'm doing great. Nice to see you. Having a good summer? Oh, man. It's been, oh, well, to be honest, I've been in Mammoth all summer. It's been perfect and skiing and great. And now I'm in Park City. And Park City is so hot in the summertime. It's insane. So I'm up here roasting, but that's why I have all, it's kind of dark in here because I have all the window shades drawn. But, uh, but you know, one of the things I always like to ask people is, is when did you ski last? You know, I ski uh, every spring in Val d'Isère, France, right up until they kick us out and they uh, kept the season open till May 6th this year. So um, yeah, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal spring in, uh, in, in France. It was outrageous. Snowed every week. Well, that's what I heard that Europe was a little bit dry and the spring was terrific. It was amazing. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I'm glad to hear it. How many days did you ski this season? You know, I, I don't really count anymore. You know, I, I, I and I don't know that I ever really did count, but uh, I ski a lot. Uh, if I'm not on an airplane, traveling to where I'm going. I'm usually skiing. So it's a lot of days. It's not what it used to be back in the day. You know, I think that way back, you know, those, those numbers were well into the hundreds, but, uh, these days, I don't know. I think it's, I'm think I'm settling in around 80 somewhere. That's still a ton of days, Dan. I love it. Well, today, Dan, I really want to dig into your huge impact in the ski industry. Uh, I think one of your biggest impacts is the Warren Miller movies is how I know you. And, you know, your book now, 30 Years in a White Haze, very exciting. want to learn more. You got crazy ski stories. I'm hoping to get some stories maybe you haven't told too much before. Thanks. And uh, induction of the Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame, congratulations, and more. There's just a lot to talk about here. So I'm going to start with uh, the, the quick and dirty three-minute life story 
We'll do some rapid fire and then we're going to dig even deeper after that. So if you don't mind, I, I love to, I do this with everybody I hire at Snowbrains. And I just yeah. decided, you know what? I need to do this with everybody I meet. I might as well do the podcast. And I know I'd like to hear yours. So could you tell us your quick and dirty three minute life story? And if it goes over three minutes, that's fine. <laughs> well, big family grew up, uh, you know, with uh, six brothers and sisters. And, um, you know, my mom's solution for, keeping everybody entertained was to tip the house over and get all the kids outside. So, you know, it was everybody just get outside. My mom grew up on a hill in Boston. Her, my grandfather's house was the highest hill in the city. And in the forties, my mom used to ski down the medium strip of the parkway on wooden skis and leather boots. And and, uh, my mom was a gym teacher. So she loved sport. When we finally left Boston, we moved to the suburbs. We lived on a hill. So we did everything, you know, we snowboarded, we, we snurfered, we skied, <laughs> uh, we sledded, we built toboggan tracks, we had goat carts, you know, we did everything up on that hill. And as long as we kind of kept it a little bit inside the boundaries, you know, we didn't get into much trouble. You know, we built jumps into the neighbor's yards and all those sort of things. You know, I'm talking leather, ties, ski boots, nothing crazy, not a long, not a big hill, but fun. And that's kind of how we saw life was to be outside and to have fun. And eventually my mom signed everybody up for the Blizzard Ski Club. And every Saturday she'd put all the kids and my dad on that bus. And that bus would take us up north. And we took regular ski school lessons from Paul and Paula Villar Ski School, Egon Zimmerman Ski Schools. Right up until I was 16, I took ski lessons. I wasn't a race kid or a mountain kid. I'd show up at ski school and get a patch on my shoulder when I went to the next group and took lessons. And the Austrians were great about drilling, you know, sidestepping, power sliding, you know, wedge turn, stepping, all this, always motion, always drills, always drills. And when I started ski racing at 14, 15 at the local hill, uh, Blue Hills, right outside of Boston, closest ski area to any major city in the country, uh, just was natural for me to ski at night in the shadows on the ice and not think anything of it. And, you know, did pretty good on that hill. So I just figured I'd do good on the next one. And that's kind of how it went. So I always had this idea that I was good and I could compete. And that's how I attacked everything. And, you know, right through high school to the state championships and on, I I just was in the game. I wasn't on the top, but I was in the game. So John, you know, sort of ran away from home when he was 16. And went to become a ski bomb at Sugarbush, Vermont. Wow. And my my mom forbid me to visit him. She said it was, <laughs> oh, wow. was not age appropriate. And oh, so wow. I used to save up my paper route money and sneak away on Friday afternoons, go to the city and take the Greyhound bus to Vermont. And I'd uh, get in a shitload of trouble on Sunday nights. <laughs> and John, I'd hang out with John and his buddies. And years later, I told my mom, you know, you were right. It was not age appropriate for me to be hanging out with those, those hippies in the seventies. And uh, but oh, I learned, yeah. a lot. I learned a lot. And you know, John, when John left Boston, he had a pair of you know Olin Mark Fours and Hanson boots. And three oh, my years, dad later, had those. Yeah, they were great. Yeah. You know, injected with with wax. And three years later, he was on the World Pro Mogul Tour. Wow. And the World Pro Peugeot Race Tour too. And by 1979, he skied in his first Warren Miller movie. So it was like wow. something we had never thought of. It was something I had never seen. I was sitting in the theater and saw my brother in the in the movie. Unreal. 
And one day I was 14 and he was going to a pro race and he was the pro race. It was at Neshoba Valley, right outside of Boston. He was in his padded gear. He had his padded stretch pants and padded sweater. And he told me, you know, Dan, I'm going to work today. Oh, and, you know, I was 14. I was like, I hadn't even thought about, I'm like, what? Like, and I, I think that one statement changed my life. Like I was like, there's another way. And I had seen his wacko ski bum buddies making living, doing other things. And so I so it was kind of in the back of my head that like, oh, there's, you can make a living doing a lot of different things. And I think that was the beginning of, of, you know, the Egan brothers, the beginning of what we were to do together. Well, and I appreciate you guys because I wouldn't be where I am without what you guys did, uh, you know, sort of paving the way. And we'll get more into that. But I also I got to guide in Antarctica with John. Oh, so sick. that was that was really, really cool. So you know, for me, it's like, holy shit, John Egan's here. Like, wow. OK, <laughs> like, um, so, yeah. So really cool. And so and fantastic to get to meet you, if uh, I'll be it digitally here. Oh, but, but yeah, continue. And where did it go from yeah. there? Well, you know, it's, it's it's John and I always, you know, spoke about skiing together, you know, John would come to my high school. He came to one high school race at the end of the race. He said, you know, if you did half of what, you know, you would have won. Oh, and I was like, whoa, you know, half, only half. And yeah, obviously you I, hadn't, I hadn't done that. Right. So I was like, you know, that bar was kind of high. And, you know, as I got into college, you know, John became this legend at Sugarbush. You know, there's stories of John flying as high as the towers on the on the trail, you know, and right. nobody to date has ever broke his, you know, the number of runs he did on a certain trail, Steins and the mall and all those sort of things. And he's the only guy ever to compete on the World Pro Mogul Tour and World Pro Race Tour in the same year. Unreal. Wow. So, you know, that bar was pretty high for me. And, you know, people, of course, you know, I was a younger brother. I wanted to, to be that good. And, and, you know, most of his friends were very good at reminding me I wasn't that good. (laughs) So, so, you know, there was like a constant thing to get better. So I called him up my sophomore year in college and told him I was going to drop out of school. He did not really welcome the call. He goes, you can come up here and ski at Sugarbush, but you have to promise me you'll go back to college in the spring. So I, I told him I would do that. And so I, I, launched my ski bum career in the winter of 83, 84. Okay. And washed dishes and got a job at one of his buddies and, you know, skied every day and uh, did as much recreational things that we shouldn't have done every day to keep (laughs) skiing. And, uh, you know, it was really fun. And I got fired from my dishwashing job in March. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it was a crazy story. My, I had a guy, buddy from college, came up to visit me, and I was I had the flu, so I didn't go to work that day. And my buddy and my roommate, as we always did at the end of the night, broke into the bar. That's what we always did. Smart. It's a smart move. <laughs> that night, the owner's wife came down and caught no. him. In the bar, oh no! And she fired me. Oh no! And I said, wait, I wasn't there. She goes, you definitely would have been there. I know you. Interesting. So wow, reputation. Fired yeah. on reputation. On reputation. <laughs> so I, I bought a one-way People Express plane ticket and flew to Tahoe. Oh. And it was my first trip out west. You know, that's the first time I John had lived in Tahoe and he had friends out there, Tom Day and those oh, guys. Yeah. 
I met Scott Schmidt for the first time and wow. Kevin Andrews. And I was not hanging out with them. I just, you know, would see them. Uh-huh. I tried to ski one run with Schmitty, but he like totally dusted me. And, uh, <laughs> and so, but I kind of saw, I'm like, well, that was cool. And then I thumbed from Tahoe all the way back to Denver. And, and I, wow. like, I went through Salt Lake and then I, I found my way up the steamboat. And then I came down through, through, uh, you know, Keystone and Breck and Vail and, and it was uh, time to go back to school. I had promised John that I would go back to school and the season was ending. And so I, I got another ticket on people express and went home for 75 bucks and went to school. Whoa. And um, so, and I was a soccer player and, and I, you know, wanted to keep playing ball. So I played my junior year and then played soccer that, in college. That's amazing. Yeah. Nice yeah, was, man. That was my, my goal was to play soccer. Um, okay. And I had been recruited to play and I, I took an wow. extra year to year off from high school that I redshirted to play at the school. And, you know, it was a big, you know, five time national championship school to play. And I wanted to be part of that. And, so and which school was it? It was Babson. Babson okay. College. Great. And, Thank you. Um, yeah. So I went and I played, I went to school, I caught up with my classes and I played in the fall and winter came around. So I was like, I'm going to Tahoe. So, <laughs> So I moved to Tahoe for the season and washed dishes and flipped burgers and poured coffee at the Clock Tower Cafe. The owner was amazing. You know, he loved ski bums and he he would hire a lot of us. Uh-huh. And I had saved enough money that summer to prepay a trip to go heli skiing. Whoa. So I had pre-bought a $2,500 heli trip. Wow. And, and it was John and all his buddies. And we went up to Valmont. But I didn't have any money. I, I I had spent the money on the you know that summer to get the trip, right? And so when I left Tahoe to go to meet everybody in Seattle, I left with eighty bucks. Nothing. Nothing. You know, John and I always had a thing. You go to an airport, meet in a bar. So uh-huh. I stumbled through Seattle till I found those guys in the bar, and I instantly bought everybody a round of drinks. <laughs> and then the next day we skied Crystal. So after the round of drinks and the day of crystal, I was down like 20 bucks. Right. And we pointed it north to Valmont and we rented this big caddy. It was a red caddy. And we had like, you know, John and his buddies. And we we went up and partied our brains out and heli skied all week. Wow. But I didn't have any ride home. <laughs> or any <laughs> money. Or any money. <laughs> and so one of John's friends had driven out there and he said, well, if you, it was a pickup truck. He goes, you can live in the back of the truck, but uh, there's no room up front. So I jumped in the back with a sleeping bag and we went everywhere. We went to Whistler. Oh, we, wow. We went, we went everywhere. And he told me eventually he'd take me to back to Tahoe. Well, a month later, <laughs> I'm still in the back of the truck and wow. we're a great time. And Dennis, you know, kind of sponsored the whole trip from on my behalf. And eventually said, dude, uh, he had to go back to New York. So he flew me. He said, here's your ticket home. So that I went, was nice. That was so I end up back in Tahoe. I hadn't seen my roommates for a month. I hadn't seen Jim to the clock tower for a month. Uh-huh. Walk in and Jim got the clock tower goes, I bet, you know, of course he held the pass, right? He had my pass. Oh, right, right. So he's like, I bet you miss skiing. I go, I do. He goes, well, go, go take a day off, go skiing. And I'll put you back on the schedule. So no was, shit. 
the dream, right? Wow, like, that is the dream. <laughs> so that, that was kind of like my roommates weren't very happy because I didn't have any money, couldn't pay rent, the whole thing. But, uh, <laughs> but they, you know, that's how it was, right? You know, back then, the fingers didn't really get skied. I'm amazed. When Eric skied, Delorier said that. Yeah, they, they huh. never really got skied. I mean, you and this would, is the fingers at Palisades Tahoe for, for Palisades those. Tahoe. Yeah. You know, you you would ski underneath the lift, kind of, but on the lookers' right, they didn't get skied. Right. You know, Schmidt had jumped them for the opening of the movie for Steep and Deep, and and John and Aunt Kevin Andrews had jumped them, but there, there wasn't that much. There were never tracks in them. Right. So my whole thing back then was if I made a decision to ski something at Tahoe alone, then I had mastered it. If right. I skied with one of my ski bum buddies, we were just hacking around. But if I had the guts to go do it alone, uh-huh. then okay, I was getting somewhere. So I went and skied the the, the, the shoot on the right. I don't know what they call it on the fingers. Uh-huh. It's natural. You got to kind of get in. You got to jump out. And I, I augured in the middle of this thing. Ooh. And I tumbled through there and left my ski pole in the middle. That's a bad place to fall. Bad place to fall. <laughs> and it's really so the next day, the next morning, I'm doing the coffee thing at the counter of the cocktail cafe and all the patrol and all the all the, you know, the ski instructors are like, that's your pole, kid. You know, they didn't. I was <laughs> no, but I was a ski bump. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's my pole. And so I, they ribbon me. Right. And finally, like after day two, I'm like, when do you go get it? I go, if you're so good, when do you go get it? But no, go get my pole. Right. Yeah. So a week later, I go up there and I'm like, I'm going to go get my pole. So I skied the shoot, picked up the pole and skied the whole thing. Right. Nice. And that changed, you know, at the clock tower, the conversation changed. And they were, hey, you got your pole, bro. That's sick. You know, like yeah. <laughs> kind of like came around. Right. Yeah. That second winter was a little bit of a coming of age for me. I felt like I, I was getting somewhere with my skiing, you know, and um, uh uh-huh. I went back to school that summer and the school kind of said, we, we're kind of, we don't really dig your program. So <laughs> we'll give you, you know, we want you to graduate with your class, which meant I needed to go to school for 12 months, May to okay. May and uh, give me my last year playing ball at the school and ski one team, one year in the ski team. And th- that'd be great by me. So that's what I did. The next winter, John and I, we kind of launched off on our own to do our thing together. It was in that winter I was in school. John and Tom Day went to shoot for Warren Miller in Verbier. And in Verbier, Switzerland. Verbier, Switzerland with John Faulkner. And they, John, stayed in Europe for like two and a half months. He didn't come home. I was at school getting postcards. Then what the hell am I doing in here? And and when he came back in the spring, we like went on, we started windsurfing and hanging out and he was no hurry to go back to work. And I was just getting out of college. And the next winter, we, we ended up uh, broke and in Summit County and in Summit County, Colorado, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And John goes, you know, on Fridays, there's a mogul contest at Highlands. They give away 500 bucks. Let's go make some money. Ooh. So we, we beelined it for the Highlands on a, fr- on a Saturday, on a Friday. And some of the guys had remembered him from his days on the Saab Pro Tour. Okay. And uh, I had never competed in bumps. I had a pair of 207 GF skis and, you know, had never competed in moguls. 
And we signed up as the Egan Brothers from Vermont, sponsored by your mama and my mama. And, <laughs> and John won three hundred dollars that day. Well, wow, that's that's huge back then. Yeah, and all the boys were like, you know, Rawls and all these guys. They were like, "Are you guys here for the start of the World Pro Tour?" And we said, "Yeah." Where is it? And yeah, it's tomorrow at Vail. So we took John Strainer Bucks, who we drove the Vail. We entered the contest as the Egan Brothers from Vermont, sponsored by your mama and my mama. <laughs> uh, we John went to the round at 16. I went to the round at eight, my second mogul contest ever. Damn. Uh, we once we won our money back. We made a little money, and you know, we never looked back. We just never looked back. It was like we were here, we were out west. We we were the Egan brothers, and that's what we just started telling everybody. Yeah. I love it. And it just went off from there, which we'll get into more. Wow. Well, so thank you so much for that. That was terrific. <laughs> and just, just for our listeners, I made a couple notes here. So uh, I think the shoot you might have skied on the fingers of Palisades Tahoe might have been Anger Bretson's. Okay. Um, oh, nice. I think yeah. I, th- I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's that's my guess from what how it sounds. I- I've fallen in there too. And wh- where is the clock tower? Is that in Tahoe City or where was the clock tower? No, the clock tower, it was a cafe right across from the Chamois. Um, oh, okay, cool. Right, right before you went into the cookie shop, it was right there on the left. There's a clock okay. top. And so kind of a, yeah, it used to be old, a cafe, not anymore. Yeah. Uh, okay, so maybe in the Olympic house there. And then uh, Valemont is up in Canada. I think British Columbia or Alberta, I forget, but way up north. And they might make a ski resort someday. So I just want to clar- clarify that fun stuff. But uh, so rapid fire questions uh, is, is my favorite segment. So we'll, we'll just jump right into it. I'll start firing questions away and you take as long or short as you want to answer these. So the, the quick and dirty is you kind of hit this before, but how many days do you ski per year? You know, I, I try not to start skiing too early in the season because then I don't return phone calls, emails or anything. So like, <laughs> I know that about me. So the minute I start skiing, it's all, all things are off. So I usually wait to after Thanksgiving and I'll ski, you know, from December 1st, right to, to the end of April. And if I'm not on a plane, I'm typically skiing very few days off and very few days at home. I love it. And how many of those days might be backcountry days? For like skinning and that sort of thing, not, not a whole lot. You know, even in Europe, we're pretty much lift access backcountry. So, um, you know, there, there are probably, you know, eight to 10 days of heli in there somewhere. And nice. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself a touring skier uh, from that aspect. What's your biggest accomplishment in skiing? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I'm one, one staying alive. I'll tell you that. It's a good question. It's been a great, great journey for me. I, I think the hall of fame was, uh, was a real honor. It yes. has, and, and sort of, uh, more than anything, I don't know if it's the greatest accomplishment, but more than anything, it put, put my career into perspective for me. Because uh, I had never really looked back at it or put it in perspective before. Um, I was just always doing it. But, I, you know, I'm really proud of where John and I went, the places we went, the things we did. They 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 weren't everyday things. I mean, in Candide's movie, some of Candide's stuff, like in his, when you see him at the, you know, the, the Great Wall of China and all this, he's at three or four places we were 20 years before him. So, like, so cool. you know, you know, the places where we went and the things that we did before people had thought about it, I, I'm really proud of that uh, and how we funded it, how we created a business out of it. What might be your biggest accomplishment in life? I, I love living. 
<laughs> I love living. And, and what I say, you know, I have no plan B. I have no plan B. My mm-hmm. plan A is my plan B. Yep. So I, my biggest accomplishment in life is not turning back, uh, not dropping out. You know, it's, it's not glorious. I'm not eating chocolate covered bonbons with my feet up, you know, I, I work <laughs> and I'm, I'm not, I like to work and I work hard at the projects that I do. And I think really my biggest accomplishment is being a, a, a good, good son, good dad, good, good cut uncle, a uh, good friend, and really never looking back. Just keep, keep moving forward. How do you define yourself? Just, I, I wake up swinging. Like, I like I'm that. The Irishman, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> and, and I have a lot of perspective, you know, I understand that my opinions, I don't, I don't even believe in them. They're just, <laughs> I, I like the Josh with people. I, li- I like to, you know, hear other perspectives. And I, I think, you know, that wrapped into what I'm really proud of is helping others change their perspective. You know, my camps, and, and the work I do and, and the speaking, it's all about how to free yourself from the critical mind and how to move towards observation and stop judging. So it's a lifelong process for a kid from Boston not to judge, but it's it's been a worthwhile thing. I love that. Uh, I remember well, I heard one of your quotes say something like, the first thing you do need to do when you're a skier is, is not think about how you ski, something along those lines. You know, what you think about your own skiing is none of your business. Like, that's it. <laughs> just stop with this. Like, everybody's after the perfect turn of this and that. And I'm like, what? Why? Well, you're missing yeah. the whole point of why yeah. we're out. And, uh, you know, Warren always said, Dan, just go make the place look prettier. Just leave your mark. Make it prettier. Uh, you don't get to do any, you know, I, I look at what everybody's doing today. And I'm like, why are they doing it? I don't, I, it doesn't, it, I'm not attached to it. I don't get it. I, I wouldn't throw a backflip. I just want it to look good. I don't know if the backflip's cool or not. I, I don't, maybe it is, but uh-huh. I don't know why, why somebody didn't turn or when they landed. Like, I, that's right. just, I, I don't get it. But, uh, you know, like Jason Leventhal makes fun of me because I still think, you know, an 88 or a 96 is a fat ski, right? Like, yeah. so, <laughs> you know, I, I, there's a lot of things I don't get, I guess. Where's your favorite place to ski? Yeah, right, right wherever my feet are. I mean, I went back to Blue Hills this winter and we skied at Blue Hills and there was mud, leaves and and uh, and snow right outside of Boston. I mean, it, it's like it was awesome. Right. And, uh-huh. you know, I love standing up in the big cooler, big sky and dropping that down. It, it's great. But I don't need to be there to have fun. Like if I'm skiing, I'm good. And yeah. I think a lot of people don't fully understand that they'll say like oh i'm a little nervous to ski with you i'm like what like look i have to wait for everybody like no offense but i have to like so if i didn't wait for people i'd never ski with anybody so like i don't mind waiting i like it's nice to have a social day of skiing doesn't happen very often yeah and and i like to ski i like to chairlift i like to talk i don't like eight packs because i don't know who the hell's on the chair with me like <laughs> they've got headphones on and talking mm. now they wear helmets and then right. they put a wooly thing over their helmet and then they got yeah. an ear like nobody's <laughs> talking to anybody and it's like i just have a wool hat like it's plenty helmets are warmer i'm like my hat's pretty warm like i'm not uh, cold like uh, <laughs> it's a simple thing I don't, I don't get all that we've built into skiing these days if you had to pick your favorite mountain ranges might what, what what might be what might they be you know, I, I, I love the Alps. 
because yeah. of the culture of the Alps. Yeah. I love the culture of the Alps. The you know some of the most stunning mountains in the world are, are the Cedar Mountains in Lebanon. You know they're outrageous. Oh wow! They look right over the Med. You know like wow, it's sick to ski there. And you know you you've been to Antarctica. You know how beautiful it is down there. And you know Baffin Island. You know, and all our explorations and the trips we did into the Arctic, and you know this from your own experience, there's nothing like the world of white. Like, oh, it's when wild. you're that far away from life, only certain things matter, and that's living. Like, you don't give a shit about what's in your pocket or what. It's living. Like, you have to deal with the elements and deal with living. So, you know, these places are beautiful, and I like the simplicity of mountains. That's why we went to ski the atlas mountains that's why we went to the julian alps that's why we went to these places because i wanted to learn about mountain cultures in those places mm -hmm. and they are beautiful but i don't know that one is better I, I just don't know that what would you do if you couldn't ski yeah dude i don't like i'd be unemployed bro like i, <laughs> <laughs> I love it <laughs> i don't know what the hell i would do if i didn't ski like i i never like, you know, I thought about that. Like, would I have a job? I don't know. Like, I don't know what the hell I would do. I don't know that I live to ski, but I sure act like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I love writing and, and I, I love the productions I do. So I'd probably be do something creative. Maybe I would have some money. I don't know if I didn't <laughs> I'd either be unemployed or rich. I don't know which it would be. Yeah. What's what scares you the most in the mountains? You know, you know, what scares me in the mountains is people that don't know they should be scared in the mountains. And mm. uh, when I'm guiding and with clients, that scares me. Yeah. I, I always like to remind, you know, I know my job is to think about the worst case scenario. Everybody else, they don't have, they can think about the best day. My job is like, I got to get them home. So, yeah. you know, leaving somebody behind scares the shit out of me and being lost in storms and being lost in the clouds are nerve wracking. Yes. Um, and I'm a sailor. So being, you know, being in the fog is nerve wracking and, you know, I've been there and I've, I've sweated it out. So my goal is to return home. And uh, when people you've been there and, 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 you know, Hey, can I jump off this? Can I do that? I always oh, say, God. you know, like, do you want a great moment or you want a good week? Like, it's up to you. Like, Oh, that's and, a good, that's a good thing to say. Yeah. Don't put everybody at risk. Cause you want your moment. Like, if the heli has to come back in to rescue you, we're going to get stuck. Like, just yeah. don't just think about the group. And uh, it's hard for people to do that. So what scares me is like these days, I don't want to be cliffed out. Like, no. you know, guiding in the Alps, you, you just don't want to be cliffed out, you know, and uh, that's that's scary. Uh, and it almost happened to me once this winter, you know, in oh, a wow. place, you know, well, like I just got sucked into the snow and oh, I went a little far. Right. So. It happens. I don't want to be cliffed out. I've lost my jumping gene. So I, I have like no interest in hucking at all. Good. Yeah. And uh, I just, so those things, but yeah, I don't like to see other people get hurt and I don't want to leave anybody behind. I remember, I'm going to remember that line when I'm guiding. Yeah. Do you want a good moment? You want a good week? That's a great yeah. way to say it. Cause yeah, some people just are just chomping at the bit. What do you love most in the mountains? Well, it returns me to my youth, mate. I mean, I become like, <laughs> you know, I think about being a kid. Like I, I think about my dad putting, putting us on the family truckster at 5am, like in the back of his mind, why did he do it? 
Why did he do it? He must have thought he was going to have a good day too, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, it had to be in his head somehow. And um, I, I think, you know, th- that it returns me to the place of my youth, and I'm and I like it. I like it. I like going back to that place where there's a movie going on in my head. The chatter has changed inside. It, you know, I'm in the moment. I'm, I'm, I love, I don't turn to slow down. Who does that? I don't know why people do that. That makes, that makes no sense to me. <laughs> and I turn to enter into the transition between turns. Like mm-hmm. the purpose of turning is to go into that beautiful place in between where nothing happens. Weightlessness. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's the magic. That's the silence between the notes. So, for me, that's why I do it. That's what it returns me. I don't know that, you know, I don't buy into the the rigmarole, you know, in the words of uh, Joe Biden, it's malarkey, right? They're like, yeah. <laughs> I, need, I need to have that for satisfaction in my life. I don't. Like, that's, I'm not trying to live my fullest life or any of that nonsense. I just like it. And, and I try and touch it as often as I can. I want to be reminded of it. I'm capable of living without it. It's okay. I've skied a lot, but every time I get back into it, I like it uh, and I, I want to do more of it. Feels good. Yeah. What's what's the funniest accident you've had in the mountains or a funny story? Well, they're endless. They're endless. <laughs> good. They're endless. I mean, we, John and I, we have had a lot of fun over the years. And uh, one of the things we're really known for was our, you know, our, our end of the season sale. We'd open oh. up the doors of the North Face van and sell everything. Like just that's how we would get home, you know, and oh. uh, we would just sell everything. And a lot of the stuff still had tags on it and everything. And we had wrapped up in Seattle up at Crystal. The cameraman made a mistake. We were in the middle of our sale because we had to get home. So we were, uh-huh. John and I had everything for sale in the parking lot. And the cameraman took his ski pants off and laid him up on the roof, of, on, on the trunk of his car. And I sold them. Right. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I sold them. So, you know, the next day, you know, like he's like, where am I? I can't find my pants. You know, I'm looking at John. John's like 200 bucks. I'm like, yeah, you know, and I, <laughs> <laughs> worth it. I don't think he ever got over it, but uh, you know, but that's how it was. And uh, we, we had been in Turkey and, you know, haggling is everything in the bazaar, right? You haggle. Oh, yeah. And there was a coat. I wanted this coat. It was a beautiful leather coat. And I haggled for a couple of days to get this coat. Oh, wow. I got my coat. I was so happy. And we flew home and we went right to Island Lake Lodge up in Canada. And we were always up there thinking, why aren't we heli skiing up here? So, you know, I come down to breakfast one day and John goes, we're flying today. I go, we're flying today? He goes, yeah. I go, how'd we work? How'd you do it? He goes, don't you worry about it. And so, <laughs> so we wake up, you know, we, we eat breakfast, we go out, the hell is there. And I go to get in and the pilot's wearing my coat. Yo, <laughs> that's how you got it. That's, that's got why it. you don't worry. <laughs> don't you worry about it. You don't have to worry about that. So, <laughs> was it worth it? Oh, yeah, it was sick. It was great. All right. Well, hey, that's great stories. Thank you so much. Uh, what, what was the scariest accident you've had in the mountains? Yeah, I mean, for for me, the the, the scariest definitely was the Mount Elbrus disaster in 1990. You know, um, you, let's just let, let's skip forward. Would you tell us that story? It's a long story, but eleven people perished. Uh, 
on May 2nd of 1990. And it, it was still Russia, USSR back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were there on a mountain expedition sponsored by the Patrick Valentin's company, Degree 7. Okay. And Patrick Valentin, the godfather of extreme skiing, was John, John's hero. And uh, when they started becoming distributed in the U.S., we wanted to be sponsored by them. So we cut a deal with the North Face that allowed us to ski in the North Face films, but ski in the Warren Miller films in Degree 7. Okay. And, uh, so that we had this deal, and they, they wanted to celebrate Patrick's life because Patrick had died. Will you want a dream trip to ski with the American extreme skiers, John and Dan, and Patrick's guides from Chamonix, the bus. The guide, guides of the Valisant guides. Wow, his own very school, cool. His own school. Yeah. So if you bought any clothing, any piece of clothing around the world from Degree 7, you got entered into the contest. Very cool. So they took nine people from around the world. Wow. And us and our film crew and the guides from Chamonix to Mount Elbers. Mm-hmm. Which is 18,000 feet, right? It was the highest peak in Europe. Highest peak in Europe. What are the seven summits? One of the seven summits and not like, not super techie, not, you know, but a lot of weather, a ton of weather. And this trip was very poorly planned. You know, they, they had school teachers, people that weren't ready to go to altitude right. and had never been and us. And, you know, that trip, you know, happened 33 years ago. And John and I have really never sat down to talk about it. Tom Day, the cameraman, we've never sat down to talk about it. Oh, Tom's uh, never mentioned it to me. Yeah, I didn't get it out uh, of him on the podcast either. Never, never talked. Nobody talks wow. about it. The only one that talks about it because I was lost in the storm for 38 hours. Oh, my God. And uh, I was left uh, alone in a snow cave. And I, at some time during the night, a Russian found my snow cave and saved my life. Really? Wow. uh, We had summited in the storm. We got lost in the storm. And this guy, I don't know all of the details of how he left his snow cave to go look for me, but he did. And I believe I was dead when he found me. My friend who died on that trip, died alone in a snow cave, very similar to my where I was. Oh, I was. I'm so sorry. And um, the next day, this guy, Sasha, and I, we rescued 14 people. Really? Got them all the way down to the village. So it was and more than just your group out there in yeah, the storm? Yeah. Well, you know, May Day is a huge holiday in that part oh. of the world. It's, it's the busiest holiday in Eastern Europe, of course, in Russia. Oh, wow. The uh, Labor's Day and uh, sort of the Union Day, and there they they calculated there was probably 15, thirteen to fifteen expeditions on the mountain that day. Jeez! And the storm was so crazy, it blew the door off the refuge. Oh! Um, and you know we were in a hundred mile an hour breeze, snowed five feet. Um, Damn! And it was you know it's a full on. You got to read the, the the book, but it, it's a. It's a full-on story. And really for me, you know, I met my guardian angels. I saw the bright light. I thought I was going, I was there, you know, I was there. It changed my whole life. I like to say, you know, everything I've done today has been shaped by that experience. And it changed my relationship with my brother. It changed everything. Some good, some bad. And, you know, John didn't, didn't go for the summit attempt that day. 
Tom didn't go for the summit attempt that day. I don't know that John ever, my brother, ever intended to go to the summit, uh, but he never told me that. Uh, John, Tom, you know, back then the camera gear was super heavy. He didn't want to carry it to the summit. Yeah. Uh, and he didn't, he had never told me. Tom and I, we're all friends, but, you know, they've never told me about that. And, you know, I was young. I was a kid. N neither one of those two were going to talk me out of that decision. My, right. The 20, the 22-year-old Dan Egan was always going to make that decision. I, <laughs> yeah. Just the way it was. I I was on fire to go. I thought that somehow summiting was going to change my life. That it's going to, I was going to be notable, maybe get another sponsor. I don't know what. It was going to be great. And uh, And in the end, you know, I learned a lot. And I learned about making bad decisions, trying to survive, teamwork. Uh, it's changed my spiritual life. I don't know that it so much was scary because at the time when I was freezing to death, I was pretty peaceful um, mm -hmm. and having nice thoughts. So, but I, it definitely today, like I alluded to before, you know, when I'm in the cloud, when I'm in the muck, when I'm, when I'm in the soup, I'm on fire, you know, like it comes oh, back to me. It doesn't leave me. And uh, I'm, I'm in those situations a lot you know, but I'm, you know, my joke is if you're going to get lost in a storm, I'm probably the guy you want to be with. And <laughs> the thing is, you should have called me before the storm hit, right? Like that's right. Yeah, as guides, we're only as good as we can. We got to get there early. We can't show up in the middle of the storm. So, no. you know, you got to be there early and people, unfortunately in America, North America, we've lost the culture of professionalism. Everybody thinks they can do it on their own. They don't need guides anymore. I took a course. I have my abbeys. You know, I don't need that. I, you know, but yeah. that's not Europe. In Europe, it's still a culture of professionalism. It's still an honored technique and, and profession. Mm -hmm. uh, but here in this country, we just say, yeah, I have, I have my abbey too. What are you talking about? Like, yeah. you know, I don't need your help. But, yeah. oh, okay. You know, what do you get for experience? Like, there's a difference. And, uh, you know, so my, my my thing is, you know, that that was scary. And uh, but like I said, it was a lot. It was a lot of things. A lot of things. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing. Uh, sorry about your friend. Uh, how many friends have you lost in the mountains? Well, it, it's a good question. Yeah. We've lost it's a heavy a question. Of, we've lost a lot of the same friends. My next project is called Dying to Ski. OK. It's a project that documents my 30 lost friends. 30. Uh, 30. And we document in this project, we start with the Paul Ruff death in the 80s when he hit Kirkwood. Mm -hmm. right was, that the huge, was that the huge cliff jump? Yeah. He showed, okay. he, he came up short. Mm -hmm. That, that was like a 200-foot cliff or something, right? It's really big. 135. 135. Wow, huge. And he was going to get paid by Mountain Dew if he made it. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, scary. But, you know, Tom and Rob Huntoon were there and he died in their arms, you know, and it was really oh. sad. Uh, but we we start with that. We kind of end my book with with Paul and and we we're going to bring it up, you know, probably up to Hillary Nelson. Oh, uh, yeah. But if you look at the deaths between, you know, really 88 to now, what you see is. You know, when Paul died, they gave him this much space in Ski Magazine. Oof. You know, it was not something that we had ever really witnessed. I mean, there were a few free stylers that had perished from jumps, but there was wasn't a thing. The only sport magazine that has a obituary regularly is Ice and Rock. 
right? And, like Eisenrock has a regular obituary. That's mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. But we now we need one now. And mm-hmm. that's sad. But if you look at the num- frequency of deaths, you know, Paul got this much. Hillary was on CNN. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. so the, the 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 that's a growth of an industry. Mm-hmm. So we follow the growth of the industry. And the growth of the industry under the guise of progression, we have deaths. And you know, people will paint it that, well, I want to be progressive. Nobody can really tell you what that means. I'm going to push it to the next level. Was that one more spin? I don't know. But, you know, when we've classified these 30 deaths, the legends, you know, uh, Shane and, and Trevor Peterson and all these guys, the, the competition deaths, right? And the, the bucket listers, the guys that, you know, were checking things off and died right. in the bucket. Yeah. So there's a connection. You know, and, you know, J.P. Eau Claire, you know, it was a sad death. And uh, they're all sad deaths. Mm-hmm. And sort of this idea that dying, doing what you love is a good death. Uh, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. And I, yeah. I, I thought that you I had it on. So, you know, Rob, Rob's heavy with this stuff, too. And, and you know, I, I Gaffney's quote in, in the, the last thing. Scott Gaffney says in the McConkie movie, Shane would be really pissed off to know he died. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. Beautiful <laughs> line. Yeah, you're and, right. And, and he would be. He would yeah. be. Oh, um, yeah. And so, you know, when we interviewed J.P.L. Claire's beautiful widow, she, she said, you know, J.P. loved me more. And I, I was... I, you know, I was in tears. I, I said, I'm glad you know that. And ever since she said that to me a few years back, I now tell all my friends, all my family, if I die, please say I was at work. I Do like not that. say I died doing my love. I love you more. Just, yeah. just say I died at work. And, you know, I don't have that plan. It's, I'm not manifesting that. I'm just setting the bar for the people in my life to know I'm not choosing my career over you. And I think if we started saying that more, we'd have fewer deaths. Mm-hmm. You know, we've lost a lot of people. Uh, the, you know, the Glenn Plake accident where the avalanche came down and wiped out his tent. And oh, with, with Remy. Yeah. Uh, and Remy, they never found him. No. They're in the same tent. They never it's found insane. Remy. It's insane. So, you know, and Plake was reading the Bible. No. When that avalanche hit. Really? And it took me a few years. I waited before I interviewed him on that, but I wanted to know what he was reading. I wanted the I wanted the the the, the text and the quote and the verse and the phrase. And uh and I, it's just so amazing. But that was on CNN. That you know, and of course, Glenn. Glenn is a you know. There's no bigger name in skiing than Glenn Plague. No, and he belongs on CNN. And I'm glad he's he made that. But to think that he was laying next to the Grammy and they never found him, you know. But T.R. Armstrong, all these guys that we love, you know, and that are gone. So the you know, I'm interested in these stories because there's a lot of um, untreated trauma in extreme sports. Mm-hmm. And we need a home for it. We need we need a place to say it's okay 
you know, for Sarah Burke and these, it's okay. Like we we're here, we, we care. Uh, and, and we don't want these stories just to be about another foundation. Like, that's great, mm-hmm. but we need to get together on this, you know? And, um, you know, Novus's thing is, in, I don't know if you're going or not. Oh, so sad. Uh, you know, his thing is this week in Park City. And Okay. Oh, good. You know, Novus, you know, again, you know, we, we have tragedies, right? There's, there, we do. And um, if we had a union, this would be on the level of, of concussions. Yeah. But we, we have no recourse. We have no recourse. And who's listening? And who, who, who's caring? It's up mm-hmm. to us, the storytellers, to tell these stories and, and to put them in perspective, to put them in perspective. You know, sport was designed to enhance our life, not end it. And I think that that is what we sh- is a return. I think this project's about a return to that. Well, I'm really excited to see that project when it comes out. And I really appreciate you speaking to this because... So many people I ask this question to don't really even answer it and they want to move on. And the people who do, I try to keep them rolling a little bit because I think it's something that's really prevalent prevalent in our industry. It's really important, obviously, and it's something we don't talk about. So I really appreciate you giving voice to this. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a corny movie, but The Beach is an amazing movie, right? So the, uh-huh. the Capra film, if you haven't watched it in a while, everybody go out there and watch it. Uh-huh. It's a it's a story about resorts, right? Uh-huh. And they find a dream place, and they have their own language and all this sort of thing, and they're going to live in paradise. Like that's Chamonix, that that's Tahoe, that that's Vale, right? These are these are Shangri Las, okay? Yep. But in the Shangri La, they can't have anybody betray you. You can't if you betray, you're out. You get hurt, you're out. Yeah, and you know it. What happens is people get hurt, and we don't visit them. Yeah. They drop out and we don't go see them. We don't follow up with them right. because they fell out of the tribe. They couldn't mm-hmm. keep up with the herd and we don't look back. Yeah. You know, Roy Tuscany is looking back with high fives. He he's, is. He's gathering people up. He, he's caring for people. And that's the thing, right? Like when I'm in Chamonix, I visit the hospital, mate. That's where I go. Oh, really? Wow. Because nobody's going. Interesting. You know? And you see the helis every day flying to the hospital. It's like Just Mac. pumping people in there. Yeah. So, you know, I, I like to keep in touch and touch base and, and see what's going on and, and talk to the families and, and see what's up. Because, you know, I do the same with people in jail. I go visit like, like, wow. why not? Right. Like they're there. They, they have the planet, you know, yeah. um, let's go check in. What's it feel like? Tell me about your experience. I haven't had it. Like, let's just it's OK. I'm here. You're there. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think we've got to take time for each other. Well, that's great. I, I have two buddies who are hurt right now and I don't call them enough. So I'm going to call them right. We get done with this call because <laughs> I've good. been there too. We've been there too. Right. And it's true. You just, it kind of, you get some radio silence. <laughs> how many avalanches have you been in? Well, how many have I triggered or how many have I been in? So been, uh, like actually been in, but yeah, triggered too. Tell us all. Well, yeah, I've never been buried. Thank God. Thank and, goodness. Uh, um, I, I've been sloughed. Uh, but but never were actually caught in a major slide, and I, I, I and none of that is due to skill. Uh, it's <laughs> it's definitely luck. there's a lot of luck out there. Oh luck! Um, but you know, as a guide, our job is to go first, right? So mm-hmm. going first is scary, and you've got to trigger stuff. And I think 
you know, what I, in my talks, corporations and man, risk management and, and stuff like that, look, there's no do-overs. Everybody today wants a do-over. Can I take that back? Can I, can you edit? You know, look, yeah. there's no do-over. So I'm only as good as my last decision. I have to make all future decisions on my last bad decision. So if I've taken people down somewhere we shouldn't be, I, I, I would love to think I could hike back up, but a lot of times you can't. So I have mm-hmm. to now make a decision based on my last decision. And if you take that approach to decision-making, you start to slowly make better decisions. And so I try to approach it like that. But, you know, we've kicked off a lot of slides over our lives, right? That's our kick them off and get them started and get them out of here, flush it out. But then there's always the one who doesn't listen. So, you know, we're up in AK, where it's a a slippery day. We're kicking stuff all over the place. And the one guy got his wife on the cell phone in the back. Oh, no. And so by the time he gets up to me, I'm like, dude, put that thing away. Uh And he didn't hear the, he didn't hear the rap, right? Right. And, you know, so I gave him the rap, but he didn't really hear the rap. So instead of skiing in the slide path that we'd cut, he went and he cut another one. Uh, right. And, you know, the situation, the groups down below. Right. This guy's kicked one about to land on the group down below. They're out. Uh, the and the birds coming in going, I'm not landing. Did you guys see what you just did? Right. Yeah. Like, we're not coming in. There's consequences. to, And mm-hmm. it's hard to become a good listener. People are distracted. Phones and music. God, music. Oh, music got me this winter up in Alaska. Oh, man. Yeah. Music. Turn off the music. Yeah, one client was just refusing. Yeah, it's so frustrating. Um, and you, you know, I'm ignorant to it because I, one, I don't wear a helmet, and two, I don't listen to music like that. So yeah, I, I never assume that they're stopping the music, right? I, I just right. think they have an itch or something. So right. um, I don't know. It's like I have to get up to speed. But look, I've been at the finish line of the Olympics. Okay, and there's a snowboard kid and dancing because of music and they're in fourth place. So, you know, as a journalist, like fourth place, you happy? Yeah, it was a great experience. You know, would you change anything? No, really? You wouldn't consider not listening to the music if it would have put you in a metal position. Well, it's not the music. Well, how do you know? You have no idea what it, what took you off that podium. You have no idea. And you're not willing to explore it. That's, that's to me. That's not like the top level. That's not top level. Yeah, you should you should experiment with it for sure. I actually just interviewed Colby Stevenson, who got silver in the big air at, at the Olympics, and I, I asked him all about his music, and it was interesting to hear his perspective. Yeah, no, the kids like it, I, and they're into yeah. it. But at the same time, it's like mm, I don't know. I, I I think we know a lot about brain chemistry. I th- I do. I think we. Know well, he did say sometimes when it's not the right song, it, it doesn't feel as good. So yeah, there there is some yin and yang. Yeah, for sure. Have you ever been hurt while skiing? Well, you know. <laughs> uh, emotionally? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I've had four knee surgeries, um, but. Ooh, but what, and what, what were they, ACLs? ACLs, yeah, on the left knee. Uh, it's my good knee now. And it was, you know, I've been knee surgery free for about, you know, 20 years. So, wow, that's um, great. Yeah, no, I, I'm good. I mean, I've never really broken too many bones or, or, or stuff like that. I've run, I've rung my bell quite a few times, you know. Oh, um, yeah. 
but um, I don't know that. Yeah, I, I always consider the El Bruce thing my injury. Yeah. You've been on ski trips all over the world. What was your favorite ski trip? Well, I, you know, I want Lebanon was amazing. Uh, Tell me a little more, because I used to hear like when the French ran Lebanon, you could surf and ski in the same day and it was out of this world. Not that, you know, it's better now that it's not French run, but I've just heard stories. Yeah. Well, we, I I wanted to run the 1993 Middle East Peace Ski. Oh, the highest peak in Lebanon with one skier from every Middle Eastern country. Right. And they get a ton of snow, right? They get a ton of snow. So I got this thing spawned, endorsed by the UN. Uh, wow. sponsored by Middle Eastern Airlines uh, and partnered with the American Arab League. And um, Impressive. And it was illegal at the time for Americans to go to, to Be- Be- Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really hard to find uh, an Israeli to join us. I bet. Um, but we had to go a year in advance to set up for security. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I when I got on the plane, there was no flights. There's you can't fly to Beirut from America. So the Middle Eastern Airlines said, get yourself to Heathrow and go to the Damascus flight and uh-huh. tell me where to go to Damascus and wink twice. What? <laughs> oh my god. Put you on the Beirut flight. That's so weird. I love it. 1992. Wow. And so, I get I get my ass over to Heathrow and I go to, and I wink twice and they put me on the Beirut flight. I sit on the plane. I'm the only American male on the plane, mm-hmm. and all these there was a few American women who had married Lebanese. They all got out of their seats one at a time, came over to me, and said, "Look, you should get off this plane." I oh, wouldn't. Whoa! I wouldn't let my brother on this plane, like. That's scary. You should, you should not. And I was like, well, you talk about I'm going, you know, peace ski and all this. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so we had t-shirts from the UN everything. And uh, so I got picked up by a Christian Shiite at the airport and the guy, the, the gate, they kept everybody a mile out from the airport. And so you, I get, I go through immigration. I can't let them stamp my passport because right. I would never really get home. So the lady goes, oh, Mr. Egan, been expecting you. She puts a paper over the passport. She stamps the paper. And I everything. love it. Uh-huh. And then the, my, my bodyguard, the Christian Shiite, arranged through the Arab League. The, he picks me up. He goes, get in the back of the car. He goes, if I were you, I would duck down. No so, shit. Duck down in the back of the car. We go through the main gate. We're all the people are waiting for their family and whatever. And, and he goes, okay, you can sit up now. I go, where, where are we going? He goes, well, the Colonel wants to meet you. Whoa. And I said, well, that's good. I, I'd like to meet the Colonel. So we get into Beirut and we come to a fully fortified house, sandbags, machine guns, Whoa. the whole thing. And we go into this courtyard and the guy goes, you can get out of the car, but don't wander away. I'm like, where the hell am I going, bro? I'm yeah. not going anywhere. I'm scared. Yeah. I get out of the car and uh, I'm waiting in this courtyard. And I'm just, no, you know, just sitting, standing there. And eventually the colonel comes out of the house and he goes, Hey, Mr. Egan, my brother runs a gas station in Cambridge. And I go, I go, well, the one on Mass Ave, the Shell station in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 
He goes, yeah, I go, yeah, I go there all the time. I go there all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And so we became fast friends. And wow. So, you know, that was just an amazing trip. And there was so much cultural. But at the end, we didn't get to do our peace ski. Because if if you recall, February of 1993 was the first World Trade Center bombing. Oh, that's right. And they drove the trucks with the with the fertilizer into the parking lot and they blew it up. And I mm-hmm. it's it's one of those things that at the 9-11 memorial, there is they do recognize those that died in in, in 93 as they should. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't, you know, my cameraman dropped out, everybody dropped out of the trip. Um, of course. But uh my other favorite time was Turkey. You know, we the, were in the Turkey. The pictures are beautiful that I just saw. Uh, it's it's amazing. I mean, 91, you know, during the Persian Gulf War, you know, on the border of Iraq, you, you're like, what? Crazy. And uh-huh. skiing with the Kurds, and they love to ski. And, and like rolling into a place where the, the, the rental shop, the skis are out on the snow. The boots are in the bindings. Ready to go. Ready to go. The Turks are walking around in their socks, trying boots on. If they fit, they skied away. Whoa. You know? But the people were beautiful, and uh, we had a great time. It was just one of those trips where everybody really was a great trip. We all got along. But we were with Wade McCoy uh, from Jackson. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, my cameraman who's with me down here right now, Tom, Tom Grissom. We had hired this van with no snow tires. And we were heading up this mountain road and the Turk didn't know how to drive in the snow. Ooh. And he eventually, we get stuck. Uh. And we were like, we had been up all night and we were just like, what the, and uh, the guy, <laughs> I pulls a gun and he points it at my brother's head. Whoa. And he says, get out and push. Weird. The, the driver? Yeah, the driver. Holy like, shit. Get out and push. We're like, fuck off, buddy. So he's got the gun, you know, and John, you know, always up for a negotiation, you know, he convinces the guy to take the magazine out of the gun to put the bullets on the dash. He goes, mm-hmm. you put the bullets on the dash, I'll push your van. You, uh, but you're a shitty driver, right? You're a shitty driver, he's telling him. Put the bullets <laughs> on, you're a shitty driver. And uh, so we get out and we're digging this thing and we got to put the chains on the tires and all uh, this And Wade's irritated. Now, Wade's a big guy, okay? Wade McCoy. I mean, he's a big guy, right? And he's tall. And he's trying to get the chains on the tire. And the guy keeps running over the chains. And they get Uh, around. Complete shit show. Awful. But but now the driver's starting to like us a little bit because we're putting some effort in, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, Wade, this whole time, he's got a bit of a plumber's crack he's working on, right? (laughs) And he's under the van. And he's, he's got the plumber's crack going. And the, the taxi driver wants to help the help him out. So he like just takes his hand with no glove, he's freezing hand, ice. Uh-huh. He goes down to like pull Wade's pants up, right? <laughs> and uh Wade whaps his head on the top of the, oh. the carriage of the van. He's all pissed off. And he goes, Hey, if the full moon rises over Turkey, you let it shine. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, that's a quick line. Wow, not bad, Wade. Kudos. Oh, amazing, dude. So <laughs> a lot, a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Is, is there anybody? Is there anywhere you would not go back to? Well, you know, when the, when the Berlin Wall came down, 
you know, the world was a hopeful place. Mm-hmm. Very much. And mm-hmm. we, we thought the world was going to get better. Right. When we jumped off the Berlin Wall with our skis on, we were standing at the crossroads of worldwide events and extreme sports. We didn't even know it. We were just, it was just a stunt. Right. Day glow suits, big hair and headbands, right? Coming off the Berlin <laughs> Wall. But when Warren saw that shot, he knew it represented freedom. Mm. Like nothing could have said freedom more than a couple of kids, Americans hucking themselves off the Berlin Wall to land in a mud puddle. But it's like you're playing with this deadly object in a way, right? Yeah. And But we represent freedom, right? Mm-hmm. And so we go off in this worldwide tour of freedom. Yugoslavia before the Civil War, Beirut, Lebanon, Turkey. Wow. Right? We, we're, we're, we're going on this whole theme of like, yeah, if everybody skied, there'd be no war. Like that was like Warren would say in the movies, we'd go do it the next year, right? Oh, wow. Beautiful. And, but today you wouldn't go. You wouldn't go. You wouldn't ski in Turkey today. Not where we were. Right. You, you know, you wouldn't go to Beirut today. No, that's for sure. You wouldn't go. I don't know if I'd go. I, I wouldn't go to Russia today. Yeah. Oh, no. And, you know, I don't know that it's it's sad that the world didn't become a safer place. And I, I think that that negativity has kind of bled through uh, the culture a little bit. And that idea that that idealism that we played with back then, that, you know, mountain cultures and people, you know, freedom. I don't know if it, it, it's dying a slow death. I, and and why do you, why do you think that is? Well, I think, I think negativity, I, I think division, I think the world unfortunately has taken on a stance of division instead of unity. Mm-hmm. And I think the power players just think that division is better for them mm-hmm. and not for the everyday guy. They want to keep us divided, you know? and. I just don't agree. I, I'm a unity guy and, you know, unity always wins. So, you know, it's unfortunate to me that you wouldn't go to some of the places we we went to anymore. I bet the people were amazing. Yeah, of course. The people, they're living, you know. When we first went behind the Iron Curtain, what did people know of the West? MTV and CNN. Oh, wow. That's it. You know, cable television, man. And uh, music, music, you listen to music, you know, like uh, really soulful conversation. It wasn't uh, wasn't a fearful one. And so, you know, that I, I miss that. I miss that about Warren. I miss that about his movies. Uh, I, I, I miss that about the movies I see people trying to make today. Uh, they miss it. Anybody can string a series of rushes together and lay down some music track like mm-hmm. the lazy edit, lazy edit. Uh, and cheap edit. Tell me something. Tell me something about the people. Tell me something about the place. Tell me something about where you went, why you went, and how it changed your perspective. Now I'll listen to your story. Now I'll listen, I'll watch your video. But mm-hmm. until you know, all the kids, you know, they they'll come to me, you know, hey, you know, I'm a I'm a pro and I, you know, this and that. And I say, you look like everybody else, bro. Uh-huh. Doing the same move. Everybody like I can't tell you apart from the other guy. I don't know if you flip twice or 10 times spun three times. I don't know anything like, look, the only guy who's really figured it all out is Cody Townsend. Oh yeah. He understands the power story. He understands the power of YouTube. 
He's mm-hmm. brought that platform to life. Mm-hmm. And he's got people watching. He's got oh, yeah. He's got sponsors. He's got celebs. He's he, he doesn't have a format. It's a, a flowy show. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that's my example of somebody who figured it out. Um, yeah, I agree. It's not, it's not Instagram. It's, it's not. It's, hey, tell me, take me somewhere. And you don't always have to win. You don't have to succeed. Not everybody gets a trophy. Cool. I, I that now I'm really interested, right? Yeah. He he's not always successful. He turns around, goes back, and to me that what he's done on that platform and how he's done it, yeah, man, my hat's off. I agree. That they are truly phenomenal, and what he's doing is great. We had him on the podcast. It's so cool to learn. And our most popular podcast was his filmer, Bjarne. Uh, which oh, is nice. cool. Yeah, it was like no, that's the, sick, right? The no, most listened to one. Yeah, that's cool. <clears throat> Where have you not skied, but you'd really like to ski there? Well, we, we, we're finally looking at it now. We, I, I want to ski in the Drakenbergs in in South Africa. Uh, oh, you know, it's a really, it's not, it's a, you know, it's a three week season or something. But um, <laughs> that, that's always been on my mind to go there. It, it's not like a first descent or anything. It's cultural. I want to go and, and uh, you know, and then go dive at the great whites. And uh, Ooh. so, you know, that that's, that's kind of on my list. And I'm finally coming back to things like that. I, I, it's been a while that, that, that sort of motivation has been, been around for me. It's been gone actually for a bit. Um, mm-hmm. But that perked my interest this spring and uh, we've got a conversation going about it. So yeah, other than that, I, um, you know, I, I've become a little bit, uh, a, you know, I, I like what I know. So, you know, I'm happy in Big Sky. I'm happy in Belvedere. I'm happy in Engelberg. I'm happy in, in Zermatt. Uh, I do a better job when I'm when I'm comfortable. I, my clients are safer when I'm comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's better. It's, you know, I'm not looking for the risk and I don't want to put others at risk. So these places that I know where I have community, uh, yeah. you know, I've got kids in, in Val d'Isere and, and family. Like, oh, wow. So, you know, that stuff for me is more important. And, uh, you know, I'm just kind of settling into that these days and, and, and just, yeah, it's okay. You know, uh, I, there's a few places I'd like to go, but you know, I'm not dying to get to Japan. I, I just don't have time to put it into my schedule and I'm not, I'm sure I've skied great powder. So I'm sure it's great, but I'm just not something on my list. Yeah. What's your favorite ski movie of all time? Ah, uh, uh. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I would be remiss not to met, not to mention uh, one of my own cult classics, Return of the Shred Eye. Um, oh, wow! Which, uh, if you haven't seen it, you've really missed it out. But, I haven't uh, seen it. Tell me, uh, Return of the Shred Eye, mate. Uh, the Shred Eye Master can telly, snowboard, and ski. Uh, uh-huh. That was the whole theme of the movie. Everybody had to do all of it. Um, Whoa. That was that was early days. That was like 91, 92, probably. Um, wow. But that, that's good. I mean, I, I love ski movies. I think uh, Michael Douglas is crushing. Uh, you know, the chairlift one he did was great. Yeah. Um, I, I really thought I think he's really anchored in story. And I appreciate what he does as well. I mean, I really appreciate his perspective on what he's doing. And, you know, Look, Stumpy made great movies, uh, and it's Greg Stump. Yeah, and it's hard to say that Blizzard wasn't the best. You know, everybody would tell you it's the best, but you know, look, the skiing in that movie, it's okay, right? The music's great, 
Uh-huh. And Stump's narration is amazing. It's so good. It's the storytelling. Amazing. So yeah. when you add that up and you see how his narration pulls you forward and the music push you back, yeah. and, and of course the skiing, Schmitty and Blake and Hattrip and others, the bump skiing at Telluride. You know, yes. So, you know, look, it's the combination is special, right? And mm-hmm. and that is the only film I know of where people will tell you where they were when they first saw it. Yep. And as a filmmaker and as a guy that was competing at the time with films, with other filmmakers, we were like, <laughs> but, but, you know, really it's a classic film. Now, you know, I don't know if it's Greg Stump's best movie or not. I don't know what it is. Uh-huh. You know, he's made great movies, funny movies, but, but definitely there's that, um, that I, I love, uh, you know, if you go back and you watch some of the Blake Miller movies back from not, uh, you know, not with no relation to Warren, uh-huh. his movies were amazing. The rap films were amazing. And Eric Perlman for what he did was amazing. I mean, the North face films, we were the first movies that didn't have narration. We were the first music video. Oh, wow. And people forget that. That was Eric Perlman did that. Uh, and those are the North Face movies. Yeah, it's Extreme 1, Extreme 2. I think maybe Extreme 3 didn't even have narration. It was just wow. music and skiing. And skiing. That, that really is, you know, the foundation of what TGR and Matchstick extended and made better. But Eric Perlman was the first one to do it. And, you know, that came out of his rock climbing and sort of his touch with Damien Sanders and the snowboarders Bentao in that time. and what that all looked like, you know, surf and skate and extreme ski. But all of this, none of it happens without the VCR. None mm-hmm. of it happens without the VCR and the VHS tape. That was right. as revolutionary as YouTube, as revolutionary, you know? And tell us why, because people don't know why. Yeah, people forget. Like, look, that's the beginning of social media, because the, the VHS tape is invited into people's homes. Yeah. And it's before going, that, you had to go to the movies, right? You had to go to the movies. You had to, you had to hope it was one wild world of sports. Uh-huh. It was scheduled TV. But then mm-hmm. now you got the cassette. Now you can rewind it. Now you know. Mm-hmm. You know, I have people come up and they sing Return of the Shred Eye to me. Shred Eye. <laughs> you, know, you know, I know what happens to Stump. I know what happens to Plague. They they regurgitate the, the, the lines that we said in the movies. And that VHS tape sat on people's shelves for 10 to 15 years mm-hmm. and people watched them and rewatched them. And that's not happening with Instagram. It's not happening on Facebook. It's not happening on TikTok. It's a hit and it's gone. Oh yeah. And it's once, once. That's why Cody is working. That's why what Mike Douglas is working because it's, they're on formats where you can rewatch them and mm-hmm. it's something to actually rewatch. There's a reason to watch it. So, you know, we, I owe my whole career to the VHS tape and, you know, Warren made movies and his son, Kurt wanted to make videos, but in that transition, they didn't know what to do. So I went to Warren. I said, Warren, what are you doing with these videos? He goes, I don't know anything about videos. I go, I want to sell them. He goes, where? I go, what? Just give me the territory East Mississippi. He goes, okay. So. Now I'm getting a commission on every Warren Miller film sold east of the Mississippi just because it's my territory. Wow. Right? And 
you know, this is before Blockbuster. This is before mm-hmm. chain stores. Every mom and pop store that ordered on a 1-800 number, I was getting credit for those sales. Whether I, had, whether, you know, and then I started negotiating rights to the North Face film, my films, Warren's films. And I would just, I had worldwide distribution out of my mom's attic. So wow. that's how I launched my media company was, yeah, we were skiers. But until once I started controlling distribution, then I could land the sponsorship, guarantee exposure, make it all work because I had distribution. My television show got launched because I was on regional cable before there was national cable. When they went national, I was grandfathered in. All of a sudden, Prime Sports becomes Fox Sports and I'm in 100 million homes. Like, wow, how did that happen? I just sitting there on Nesson. You know, I had syndicated myself to Mountain, you know, um, Madison Square Network, Sunshine Network, these other regional networks. And all of a sudden they merge and I'm in. I own wow. the time. So, you know, that's really what made our career. I mean, John and I can ski. Trust me, we're pretty, we're OK. But uh-huh. it was everything behind it that that made it made it go. Yeah. And what else were you folks doing to to make money? Because well, I know, you know, ski bombing and, and even being in the movies, I, I, how much money are you making being in a scheme, a Warren Miller movie? I mean, dude, we're rolling in the dough, man. Yeah, yeah. Every day, you know? <laughs> we, we were having yard sales to get home. Uh, exactly. Yeah, that's what I remember right now already, right? Yeah, uh, so you had to find another way. Yeah, John, John's a builder. He's always been a builder. He's had built condos and homes and is a master builder, always has done that. And uh-huh. uh, I would I would uh, be a laborer for him in the off-season. But I've run... Uh, marinas and sailing schools uh ever since i got out of college um and you know i've been everything from the petrified farm bread guy to the usa delivery guy and you know coaching always coaching soccer coach um, and and always coach i my best job my favorite job uh was the middle school you know soccer coach for seven years and uh, oh that's so cool and they they called us a soccer factory back then. We were we had <laughs> co-ed teams, fifth fifth grade, the eighth grade co-ed team beating high school. So uh, I was, you know, I love that. And I love motivating kids. So we, you know, I've done everything. Warren flew me to Portillo in 89. Yeah, Portillo, and, Chile. Portillo, Chile. And I, I had heard that if you show up early, Warren would give you the keys to the Audi. Who? So I flew <laughs> Mimosa Beach, L.A., and I, I was thinking to myself, I'm going to get the keys to the Audi and I'm going to cruise the beach. So I show up. I go, hey, Warren. He goes, Egan, you're early. I'm thinking, here it comes. <laughs> I go, yeah. He goes, well, make yourself useful. Sweep the editing room floor. Oh, no. <laughs> and I'm like, huh, maybe I get the key after. If I do a good job sweeping up, I'll get the keys. So, you know, I go to the editing room. It's all 16 mil sitting on the floor. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to throw it away. This is warm mill footage. I'm probably on the floor. Yeah. Right? So I get this pile. I'm like, Warren, what the hell do you want me to do with this film? He goes, why don't you go make a movie out of it? You're the first kid to sweep the floor. And Whoa. I was like, seriously? He goes, yeah, I've always wanted somebody to make a movie out of my outtakes. And so I did. I went and made it a little film. And um, he liked it. And he goes, now let me teach you how to narrate. Ooh. So once we did that, he put me on the road and I would go to cities two weeks before the big show. 
Mm -hmm. I'd go to a retail store, a ski show, a college, and I would show the the little movie. Uh And back then that launched my tour. So North Face sponsored it, REI sponsored it. I had a little tour. Well done. Greg Stump went to colleges, Warren went to theaters, and I went to retailers and ski shows. Ah. And we were the major tours of the day. And the only difference between all that was when you came to my show, I narrated live. Oh, wow. I learned that from Warren. I think I'm the last guy still to do that. So So Warren used to do that live. Warren did it live. Wow, I didn't know that. He he passed that off to me, and I would do my shows live. Uh-huh. And, you know, Warren was amazing. He, he, when he did it live, he would tell three jokes in the in the montage. Okay. Based on those, the response to those three jokes, he would change the whole narration for the rest of the night. It was really? A joke, there was an inappropriate joke. There was like an adventure joke, right? And uh-huh. he would speak who's in the audience. Wow. Then he would kind of go in that track. So I narrated without a script for forever and the script would kind of evolve each show and go to a different place and you know over the years the show went from the little movie i made from his outtakes to a slide projection show when i made my first egan entertainment film i i sold sponsorship but not enough to make the movie so we took still photos john and i went around the world we, we brought a still photographer and went back to boston ned gillette used to tour with a slideshow and tell his stories about climbing Everest. And I used okay. to go as a kid to the Ned Gillette show. Okay. Okay. You'd, you'd sit and listen to tell the story. So I was like, I always had this idea in my head. I could, I could tour with just a slide, but why not? If I had six slide projectors, what would that look like? So mm-hmm. I built a slideshow out of six slides. I had a computer that had no memory. There was no memory. It was Zero. tones onto a cassette tape. those tones would flash cut dissolve or the the slide projectors okay Uh and i would time the tones to the music okay and then i had to deliver the movie because i sold the movie to fisher okay i took my slideshow pointed it at the wall and got a vhs camera recorded the slideshow and handed it in as my movie rudimentary they liked it it was yeah it was raw we won the crest at the time crest debut always had the international ski film festival and we got best film of the year best new film of the year whoa and uh it was fisher skis uh the egan brothers worldwide and wild was the name of the show and so you know i understood the power of imagery the the narration all kind of how it worked together warren showed me all that so, you know, I laugh about it now. Like, I've been going to ski shows and touring. I'll do it again this year for the last 30 years. You know, I'm in London. And I'm, I'm all over the place with these shows and, and my talks and, you know, presentation. Now it's a PowerPoint, but it's really nothing's changed. And so that, for me, has always funded my falls, the tour, the talks, my presentations. And then I roll into winter and, uh, yeah, never return a call since. The beautiful plan. What challenges you the most intellectually on a daily basis? I think the internal battle, you know, uh, staying positive. I think freeing myself from the critical mind. I think that is a, a challenge. 
you know, my newest project is on racism in sports. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it's called Transforming the Beautiful Game. It's about the Clyde Best, who's the first black superstar in England in the TV era. First black player in the Premier League. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's challenging. I'm a white kid from Boston. Right. And it's a challenging movie to, to do. And I, I, I embrace it. You know, it's, it's changing my perspective. I think what's challenging in life is to have compassion and empathy. Mm. And th those are the two things that we're, the world can never have enough of. And uh, whether that's for myself <laughs> or others. And I think it's super important. And I think that that's what challenges me. Can I, can I take that into the world? Can I walk that talk? It's tough. Some days, yes. Some days, no. So, you know, I love manifesting the future. I, I, I love saying I'm going to plant this flag in tomorrow and move towards it. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I'm going to move in that direction. I'm going to raise that money for that project. I'm going to not take no for an answer. I'm going to make it my job to do that. Some that looks like a lot of different things for me. That's either selling a heli trip, selling my camps in Montana, making a movie, you know, uh, writing a book. You know, if 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 one guy can do it, another can do it too. And just kind of repeating these things and moving down that road. Like I said earlier, no plan B. This is what I've chosen to do. It's too late to turn back now. Nobody would take me anyways. So <laughs> just like keep keep moving and. Um, so I, I love that. I love being involved with perspective, changing other people's perspective and creating collaboration. You know, working in a collaborative manner is everything. And, you know, people forget like, yeah, you can have success in life, but you have to remember like certain things are special and it takes that special thing, whatever that thing is to be successful. You're not always going to duplicate it. So don't just sell it and think you're going to do it again. That's not necessarily true. A lot of my friends have built something and sold it, and now they're consultants. Like, they never got it back. Right. And for me, I don't want to leave that space. I want to say in that space, things are special. Certain things, if the world's going to make it manifest itself in the right direction, it will line up. You know, we're sitting here today waiting on a guy that blew us off. Like, that's life. Maybe, okay, he's not... He doesn't want to be in the movie. He's, he, I'm looking at it as a cost savings. I don't have to edit him out of the movie. Like, <laughs> there you go. So, like, that's just the way it is, right? Uh, but to hopefully tomorrow's guys will show up. So, you know, you can't take this as a win-lose proposition. It has to be, you know, maybe the guy's sick. I don't know. Maybe he has to take care of his kids. I, I don't know what happened to him. Mm -hmm. But if he called me, it would be okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And he, and he could reschedule and he hasn't called. But yeah, I, I think really the biggest challenge in life is compassion and empathy and for myself and others. That was beautiful. What's your favorite book or books? Well, I mean, Shackleton's book is amazing, Endurance, right? It's like so it's good. Outrageous. And one, one of the things you notice about in that book is like the longer they're on the ice, the more grateful they get. Mm -hmm. and, you know, that that's a sick perspective that. Yeah. They're now doing things that somebody would have done for them at home, and they're recognizing they were ingrates at home. Mm -hmm. you know? And so I think that that book is amazing. The other book, which you know I travel with, is uh, 
Emmett Fox uh, around the world in the year. You know, it's a day by day book. I've heard of that. It's sick, dude. It's like, and you know, he, he's into metaphysics, right? He's in the metaphysics and uh, manifesting and, uh, you know, all those sorts of things. And it's based in myth, mythology, the Bible, it's got everything in it. And so I, I love that, you know, and, but I'm also a romantic dude. I, I'm like, uh, <laughs> I, I'm an emotional disaster, right? So like, <laughs> like, I, I love, you know, I, you said books, but you know, I, I love, you know, the ending to uh, a river's runs through it. You know? Oh, amazing. I still fish the big waters alone. Mm-hmm. And I know that I shouldn't. Oh, but standing by, you know, the dusk of the day, casting a fly, hoping that a fish will rise to meet it. And I remember the ones that have come before me and he listed names. And they're all gone now. But if you listen to the waters and you listen, you'll hear their voices. And, you know, it's just like amazing, right? So when you asked me earlier, why do we go to the mountains? That's why, you know, we go to remember, we go to forget, we go to escape, we go to be, and we're going to fish, I hope, the big waters long after they tell us not to, you know, I just, you know, take me to the top of the Guida Medi, strap them on and just give me a push, you know, like, <laughs> I'll be okay. I'll be all right. You know? And, uh, you know, just to, to go gracefully, really. Right. That's kind of the beauty of the dance. Yeah. So I, I like books that bring me there, you know, writers that can do that. I'm a Thoreau fan, you know, I've always a uh, Walden, you know, I love it. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't wish to take a cabin passage. I want to go before the mast, you know, and, and just those sort of things keep me moving, you know? And so, uh, I, I'm into that. I'm into that. Terrific. I, I, I gave me chills a couple of times there. Uh, that, that, the ending to a river runs through it is, is truly special. Who, who has inspired you the most in your life? You know, definitely have been inspired, um, by people who have done with, who've who have done something without things, mm. somebody who, who accomplished stuff that didn't have a lot somebody who has a clear mission and can say it and knows what it is. Um, but for sure, you know, my brother, John's been a huge inspiration for me. You know, he's a self-starter. He's, a, he's built his own life. He's built his own house. You know, he'll work to the, he's still doing it, you know, just right to the end of the day. He's like, yeah. if you keep up with him, he's going to tell you, you know, you can't, <laughs> uh, he's, he's a, he's a hard guy, but he's an inspirational guy. But then, you know, there's been so many and I'm lucky. I've had great mentors. Uh, You know, my gym teacher in elementary school was the high school soccer coach. That guy changed my life. You know, Mm. he started town soccer with my fourth grade class. When I was in grade school, we played played against the junior high. Where in junior high, we played with the high school kids. When I was in high school, I played on his men's team. Like he just raised the bar and he. Every time, you know, my Irish got up and I got a red card for kicking somebody in the shoe, <laughs> he, he wouldn't swear at me. He would just say, you know, it's below you. You know, it's below you. You know, uh-huh. he had a very high bar and very high standard. You know, uh, I've had great coaches uh, and guys that I care about. Me. I'm still in touch with all my coaches, all my soccer coaches, all my ski coaches. Really? Uh, wow. I just, just had an event. They all came to my event this past wow. week. And, uh, you know, and I. I've tried to just do that for kids, do the same. There's not enough of that. And uh, I've had great mentors. My dad was, was a 
a real mentor for me in a, in a way that, of course, as a kid, you don't realize. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we always have these things with our folks. But my dad was a steady Eddie guy. He wasn't flashy. He wasn't really an athlete. He, he loved to sail and loved to ski, um, but never rode a bike, never played catch with my dad. He, he was legally blind in one eye. It wasn't his thing. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, he, you know, I learned a lot. Mainly the things I learned are the things he never said. He just watched what he did um, and how he did it and his belief system. Uh, and, um, you know, his final, when my dad finally retired, he, he moved in with me. He lived with me. He traveled with me. We went to camps. He came to Montana with me and Wyoming. Oh, with wow. me. When I was the general manager of a ski area, he parked cars in the parking lot for me. <laughs> And, uh, you know, again, he never really said much, but he, he did a lot. And we had an understanding, my dad and I. Uh, he still sits on my shoulder today. I'm out, say, I just did a boat delivery from Bermuda back to Cape Cod. And at oh, night, wow. who's, who's, you know, it's my, my dad's hanging out. You know, it's like, uh, so, you know, I, I love that. So there's, I've been lucky to have a lot of, lot of good mentors in my life, people who cared about me, people who told me. You know, look, man, guy like you should never say fuck it. You you get you get stuck into that. You you're gonna get in a lot of trouble. Like, don't say it. And I remember a guy pulling me aside by the you know and telling me, don't stop saying that. Uh-huh. And I was like, wow. And I did. You know, and and then it's like having an uncle. I've got a lot, you know, big family. I mean, huge family. So I've got uncles that will you know slap me around. You know, when I was a kid and say. Don't be a stranger. Make sure you visit family, you dumbass. You know, like just like <laughs> clear, good instruction. Like just stop screwing around. You know. Um, so yeah, I've had a lot of that. That's great. And you know, in, in 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 the same vein as being inspired, I'm so curious about your your relationship with Warren Miller. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I know he was pivotal for you, and, and I think the other way around as well. So what was Warren like? You know, what did he teach you? Why was he special? Tell tell me, just tell me your how do you feel about Warren? I love Warren. I love Warren. I mean, he, he, uh, look, the Warren Miller name and brand, I, I, without it, I don't have a career. I'm still milking that one. And, uh, right. as you should. Yeah, of course. And people were scared of Warren. People oh, didn't why? Like people, well, he was Warren. Like, should I talk to him? Should I not talk to him? What can, what do I say to him? What are you uh, after? Him? But right. Warren, you know, Warren was a special guy and I would ask Warren questions. I would say, you know, Warren, John and I are the first skiers and the only skiers to own our own footage inside of Warren Miller film. Interesting. And that's all because I asked him the question. Like, Warren, I see how you treat skiers. I don't love it. <laughs> Is there another way? He's like, well, what, what would it look like? And I said, well, what, what if I organized the trip? What if I hired the cameraman? Would you buy the footage from me? Ah. He goes, yeah. I go, and would you give me a guarantee? Would you guarantee so many minutes in the film. Interesting. And he did it. Wow. But nobody had ever asked him the question before. When I asked him the question about the VHS tape, nobody had asked him. So Warren was that way. Like, if you had the balls to ask him, he'd consider it. You know, mm-hmm. Gary Nate, the famed cameraman, tells a great story. When he was a kid starting out, he went and he waited for Warren at the stage door down in Salt Lake City till the mm-hmm. show was over. Warren came out to stage door. And, and Nate went up to him and said, hey, I'm Gary Nate. You can either hire me or compete against me. What do you want to do? And Ooh. Warren hired him. Wow. And that's how Warren was. 
He was a courageous guy. And if you met him in that space, he honored you. He respected you. That's mm-hmm. why I think he really, you know, loved Warren, uh, Scott Schmidt and why their relationship was really special. You know, they they respected each other. And Warren knew that I I loved story. He, he saw that I was a storyteller. He loved that. He loved John, you know, too. He, he loved John's boldness and John's courageousness and how, how John attacks the skier. Look, I'm a good skier. I'm okay. You know, I can get down the hill. My uh-huh. brother's a special skier. I mean, there's, you, there's no doubt about it. He's special. Uh, you know, there's not many that ski like my brother. And um, I was just lucky to have the best seat in the house to ski with him, you know? <laughs> and uh, I, I've enjoyed every moment of it. But um, Warren was that way. I mean, Warren was grumpy. Uh, he was, you know, cogety, you know. <laughs> When he was 90, I went to his birthday party at the YC at the Yellowstone Club. And I'm like, hey, Warren, it's Dan. He goes, Egan, what'd you jump the fence? No so, way. <laughs> How'd you get in here? How'd you get in? What are you doing? You're vlogging here. Yeah. And, oh, I love it. That's how Warren was. And, um, you know, he was he was good to me. He was good to me. And uh, I like to think I was good to, to Warren, you know, when we made the Ski Bum movie and and cared about that movie and, and the message in that movie. Uh, I think it really captured who he was. How many Warren Miller movies were you in? Well, I, the last one was uh, the one nobody saw, Future Retro, because it came out during COVID. Oh, no. And didn't, didn't tour. But um, so I think all told, it's it's in the 15, 15 era. Uh, wow. And that's both feature films and videos, because for a while, you know, it's not like like, Chris Anthony or some of the, or Davenport or even uh, Marcus, they're, they're in the feature films. We were in the feature film and there was always another video that year. So we were getting oh. like two ones each year, you know? I didn't uh, know that. So that we were in a lot of films in a very short period of time. Uh-huh. With, you know, Chris Anthony, I think, has been in 25 films, but, uh, you know, that's been over a really long stretch of time. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. I'm, I'm, you know what they're doing now with the film and the you know the new making of the movie, uh, the way they're going to do it. I, I I agree with. I, I think that uh, there's a lot of footage that that people want to see. They don't necessarily have to reshoot the film uh, every year. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought there was a lot of people crying over spilt milk this winter when they lost their contracts, and there was a lot of misguided perception and perspective on. A lot of history when people started bantering on social media about their own situation without really much perspective for those who have come before him. I can name t- 10 directors of photography that have come and go. Nobody's special here. Right. I, you know, hundreds of skiers have come and gone. Nobody's career is guaranteed. And these days, everybody thinks their career is guaranteed. Like, for what? Why? Uh, yeah. Make a living on your own, bro. Like, get mm-hmm. out there and, like, have to get after it without, you know, being on the gravy train, see what it's like, you know, uh, I, that's where I come from. I have no sympathy. And, and I think the Warren Miller film tour is the most special yes. thing ever. And if you've worked for Warren Miller and then tried to take down or talk bad about what it did for your career after 25 years, I would lose a lot of respect for people. Like, Look, Warren Miller has nine top grossing films on the top 20 all-time documentary list. 
Really? Damn. Nobody's ever done that. Warren Miller is the most prolific filmmaker of all time in any genre. There's no American filmmaker that's made more movies than Warren Miller entertainment. Yeah. So let's have some perspective here. Let's keep the thing going. It's special. And if somebody's lost a contract, go get another one. Mm-hmm. Like get over yourself and get another job and, and stop taking the piss out of the thing that made you who you were. That irritates me, dude. I'm fired up about this. And uh, I remember the day I got fired from Warren Miller Entertainment. Okay. Oh, you're I, fired. I used to go oversee <laughs> 21 cities on the tour from Chicago East. They were all my Wow, city. that's exhausting. I was the ad agency for 21 shows. Okay. Uh-huh. One summer, right about now, the intern called me up. The intern. The kid goes, <laughs> hey, Mr. Egan, I don't really know you. I know you've been with the company a while, but I'm the intern. And my boss called, told me I'm supposed to tell you. I said, who are you? Yeah, what? <laughs> He's like, I'm the intern. I go, okay, Mr. Intern, what, what do you get for me? He goes, well, they want me to tell you. I'm like, oh, this is not going to be good. <laughs> You're taking all your accounts in-house. And I go, dude, what's your name? He goes, blah, blah. I go, I got to tell you something, man. You're going to go far in life. I go, you're the man. I go, you got some balls. Yeah. I go, yeah. One, you're following directions to the T. The kid, I don't know, your boss is a jerk, but you're doing it, mate. And I yeah. said, I respect you. I go, I really do, man. You just, you just kicked me out of the club, you know? <laughs> I go, good luck, bro. Like, if you need anything, give me a call, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I, I hang up and I'm thinking to myself, well, they long since fired Warren, you know? Yeah, I guess that's true. There had only been a handful of still left, Kim Snyder, Tom Day, myself, maybe one other. I said, what would Warren do? Warren would write a book. And that's when I wrote down the title of my book right then. Oh. I said, Warren would write a book. You know, his book was always, you know, Wine, woman, and Warren lurching from one disaster to another, right? That's like, right. And I'm like, what would Warren? Warren's been here before. I'm here now. There's nothing new to this. I'm not going to be mad at Warren Miller Films. Whatever. The, yeah. You know, I, I, I just want to be on the merry-go-round one more time. Like, that's all <laughs> I'm trying to do in life. You know what I mean? Like, well, I'm not going to be pissed off about this. I've had an awesome run. So. You know, when I see people like lose a sponsorship and moan about it, I'm I'm like, what are you talking about, dude? You just had the luckiest ride of your life. Somebody gave you free skis, paid your ass to go heli skiing. Now you're pissed off about it. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't. But you wrote the book. And so tell us I about this book. book. Yeah. So tell us about the book. It's a great it's a great transition. No, I wrote the book 30 years in a white haze because I can <clears> barely <throat> remember any of it. You know, people always told me I should write about the Elbrus trip. And yes. I never wanted my story to end with that trip. That's that trip is the beginning of my story. It's the beginning of my story, not the end. I, I don't like reading mountain when you ask me my favorite books. It's really not about mountain books where there is disaster on K2 and that defines their life and they missed every kid's birthday. Like I don't give a shit about that. <laughs> and uh so you know, that's what I that's what I did. 30 years in a white haze is the John and Dan Egan story and my story, my perspective of that story. And, you know, it's all in there. The good, the bad, the ugly, the divorce, the, the ups, the downs, the 
you know, my brothers and I relationship, good, bad, mad, glad, and sad. It's all in there. We cover the history of extreme skiing. The roots of extreme skiing is in the hot dogging movement. It's not in the mountaineering movement. It's not in the mm-hmm. alpinism. Mm-hmm. We're not Europeans. We, there's no alpinism in, in our VHS videos. I don't People can pretend yeah. and wear, you know, backpacks if they want. But that's really, we were just a bunch of kids jumping off cliffs for the movies. That's what we were. We weren't mountaineers. And some of us became that, but we weren't that then. Right. And, and I, I draw those roots all the way back to Stein Erickson, you know, and his Berg, and his flips and other oh, so sick. And right up until you know, really where it where it went. And it's just a story of you know, of traveling around. And, and again, like when it wins, W's and L's, man, wins and losses, and uh, and you know, more good days than bad. And then that's that's how it went. Yeah. A quote I've heard you say about the movie is that, you know, you explain in the movie how skiing almost killed you and it definitely saved you. Could you could you speak more to that? What are, what are some good examples? Well, I, I you know, I think Elbrus is the example, you know, it, it uh, almost killed me and uh, mm-hmm. the divorce almost killed me. You know, uh, I'm lucky I, I got divorced and I didn't end up in jail like uh, I didn't want to be divorced. So like uh-huh. and I'm Irish, so like. Uh, <laughs> I got, I got emotion. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, uh, look, not everybody's out to make Solomon soup. They don't know how to do it. Like some people get involved with your life because they think it's cool. Right. But right. no reason to be involved with anybody. And they don't really know what's on the other side, what's behind the curtain, how hard it is. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you have to wake up every day and get this done. How, at whatever level I'm an old guy now. So like, Jesus, you know, um, it's just another world. So, you know, it's the book kind of sums that up in my mind. And I think that quote sums it up. It's like, and Warren lived like that. If you're willing to take something to the limit, you can't have it all. This is what I say in the Warren Miller film. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, want, they want it all, but you, mm-hmm. you can't have it all. So let's, let's start there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, they, they don't understand the journey. They might want to be part of the journey, but when they're not getting what they want out of the journey, then all of a sudden, you know, so a lot of people like Warren and others, and we're misunderstood because they don't understand what we're really doing. And if you could stand back and see what we're really doing, it'd be easier to understand. But when you're part of it, it looks like chaos. It looks like confusion. It looks like nonstop travel. It looks like you don't know where the next shoe is going to drop. Like all that's, that's all true. But that's not, you know, like I didn't sign up for a desk job and I'm not punching a clock and this is what I do. And, so, and, and when you say that, what are you really doing? Well, what, what, what I'm doing is I am telling stories now mm-hmm. of people, of stories that I think help others with perspective. My newest podcast is the 603 podcast, Everything New Hampshire. You know, oh. the, pe- the people, places, and things of the Granite State. Nice. Uh, you know, and and I think, you know, anchoring in a place with those stories is important for the state and, and important for me. I gain perspective when I learn about people making a living uh, in the Northeast. The movie, the Clyde Best documentary, you know, tackling the unfortunate and disastrous topic of racism and and the struggle that still exists today it's unbelievable Mm -hmm. Uh, and and really 
inexcusable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that's what I'm doing. And I'm mentoring. I'm I'm inspired. I like to think inspiring. I'm helping others see something maybe they in them in their selves it, for the for their own lives. And you know, that can be anything from a a, a kid to an adult. I've got a few friends that when I'll be over in France and they'll come up and they'll whisper, they still think you're you're gonna teach them how to ski, you know. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not there to teach anybody to ski, bro. Uh-huh. I want to teach people to think. Oh, you know, I don't give a shit if you carve your turn or not. Like, if that's your thing, okay. But how do you see the world and why are you so wrapped up in whether it's a good or a bad turn? That's what I'm interested in. And, you know, they call me the skiing psychiatrist. Like, ooh, that's what I'm into. Like, what are you thinking about? Why, why is that so important to you? Uh, what, what would happen if it wasn't important to you? Uh, I teach people to skid, dude. I, I mean, like, you know, carving, we've overtaught carving. Don't carve down the big couloir. Like, please, skid your turn. Like, uh, <laughs> I saw that you had Johnny Carl, uh, Collinson on, and, uh, you know, he's an animal, right? So, yes, that dude can ski, bro. And uh, yeah. I, I was, you know, he came out with the Red Bull and we, we went for, we had a day together, and, uh, you know, he shredded the big couloir, you know? Ooh. You know, just freaking lit the place up. He's so good. And uh, I was like, I skied down to him and I said, dude, that was amazing. I never would have thought to ski like that. And he started to laugh. And I said, what's up? He goes, I wouldn't have thought to ski the way you did. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, it's just, it's generational, right? It's so funny. And, yeah. uh, but I, you know, it, it's, it's amazing. So yeah, I think, you know, what are we thinking about? How we think about it? How's it affect? How do we manifest the future? How do we live, you know, sort of less judgment? Um, that that's well, that's what I'm doing. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate you, and I appreciate what you're doing. And the last thing I wanted to talk about is is my first exposure to you and your brother was uh, I'm reading now it was from 1990. You guys had that cornice break segment, and turns out it was an extreme winter, one of the Warren Miller movies. And it, there's some people say it's the most viewed ski segment of all time. Would you please tell us that story? You got to tell us that story. Yeah, it's amazing that we're alive. Uh, Were you that. the first one or the second one too? Like, because the first guy seemed I, like no big deal. It it snowed for a week, and uh, one I, of those where parties, were you? I start start Grand Targi and take Grand Targi, Wyoming, and it's a, it's it pounds for a week. One of those storms where you just can't go out, and uh, uh-huh. we always showed up every shoot a week early. Because we knew they'd put us up, feed us, and give us and give us free lift tickets, right? There you so go. We showed up early. We lied to the marketing person that we had a cameraman with us, and we went skiing, right? Mm-hmm. So when the camera guy showed up, you know, the real guy showed up. We had to sit for a week because there was no snow, and there was too much snow. And Gary Nate was the guy. That day, there was so much wind during that storm. There were cornices everywhere. And that oh. wasn't the only cornice that broke that day. There was another cornice when we were skiing off of uh, Peacock Mountain that broke, and there were three of us skiing, and the guy in the middle fell in the Whoa. Ah. Over, over all those cliffs. So Whoa. we were looking at Mary, Mary's, and we were looking at that ridge line, and Gary wanted to shoot it. But the crazy thing is that Gary went up the lift to shoot it from across the valley. We started to hike Mary's. 
Okay. The ski patrol went with the camera guy. <laughs> he, didn't go with us. he didn't go with us. Nobody told us that that ridge is in a straight line. Nobody Ooh. said probably a corner up. Like, I'm not calling out the patrol, but like nobody said boo to us. The camera right. went with the camera, the still, the motion. They all went to shoot across the valley. We had radios. We hike up there. And Gary says, ski along the edge. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Yeah. I'll, I'll go first. John's going to follow me. And I'm skiing down the ridge. And, you know, you got to remember, we're on the Razi Nowantums, right? Remember the, the Nowantums? I don't. They, they, the, the Razi Quantums, they had the, they had the see-through tip, right? They had a oh. tip. We called them the Nowantums because <laughs> they were so soft, the noodles, you know? Oh. And so we're skiing on the Nowantums, and we're going down the ridge. And all of a sudden, I see daylight. Oof. I'm like, there's a hole. So I jump over the hole, and I land on the cornice. I didn't know it was a cornice. Right. So I'm skiing a little further. I see another hole. And every time I see these holes, I'm kind of heading towards the the outer ridge. Right. I jump over the hole. Mm -hmm. And that time when I landed, the cornice broke. Now that corner, it, it it went like like quick, like a yeah. zip, and it went the size of two Mack trucks, yeah, right, mm-hmm. two big trucks. Yeah, and I, I don't really realize what happened because it feels like to me I hit a wind drift because mm-hmm. I'm actually on the piece that's broken, skiing back uphill. I'm like double mm-hmm. pole planting as I always do to get up. <laughs> into back on the mountain, but it felt like a wind drift. Mm-hmm. John, he starts yelling, but there's nothing new about that. Yeah. Since I was a little kid, like I don't listen to that shit. Like he starts screaming, right? And, and I keep skiing. I just keep skiing. And uh-huh. John keeps yelling. Uh-huh. Yelling, stop, stop. And finally, I'm like, what, what is he want me to stop? This is epic, right? So, uh-huh. I turn around, I stop. He goes, turn around, dude. And, you know, his track, the tracks go and they disappear. The cornice broke. And then you see his tracks come back. And he turned in midair. They call it the hand of God turn. Yes. Right when the thing broke, he's heading towards the edge. And for a moment, he stems, thinking maybe he would stop. Mm -hmm. But realizing he would never stop in time, he pushed. And that push is what saved his life. He was able to push and get one pole, and he kind of airplane airplane turns in the air over the falling piece of snow. It is epic. It's unbelievable. <laughs> What's unbelievable about all that? One is John's athleticism. Yes. Two, the fact that sometimes you've got to push and not stop. A lot of mm-hmm. life lessons in that. And mm-hmm. two, Gary Nate didn't flinch the camera. He held it steady. Never flinched the camera. Like. Holy shit. He didn't like stop. He didn't look. He he was ice cold. Mm-hmm. And so he nails that. Right. And um, John's freaking out. And I'm like, I'm freaking out now. I'm like, what the hell happened? <laughs> <laughs> so there's a shot in the movie. If you go back and you watch the, the, the segment, the full segment, the cornice breaks. And later there's a shot of John in his yellow one piece suit flying through the air 
exploding a tree. He, he, he had so much energy after that. He just told Gary, point the camera at that tree. I'm going to explode it. Whoa. And he, just, he just hit this wind drift and like body checks the tree. Whoa. And just the whole thing is great shot, right? <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, we've totally lost the plot. Like I'm, I can't even think straight. I'm done. Yeah. And uh, John, John still wants to keep going as he does. And uh, <laughs> it was just really amazing. But I, you know, John's athleticism, uh, he's quick to think on his feet, the ability to not freak out. Um, you know, it's really a great shot. Uh, it is, you know, from my understanding, the most viewed Warren Miller shot of all time. Um, and that says a lot for all, there's been a lot of great footage over the time, but it, I don't know that we've ever captured anything at Warren Miller Films that summed up how close to the edge we were living, you know, for anybody where where it wasn't a disaster. So I think that's one of the reasons why it, it, it continues to show so well. Well, I think it's a really great metaphor for your ski career and your brother's ski career and and what you guys have been through in your life. So uh, it really is on the edge. And uh, I, I, I hugely appreciate you being here. Dan, that's all I've got for you, Ben. Do you have any other thoughts you'd like to share here at the end of the show? No, I appreciate what you're doing. I, I, you know, I, I, I love seeing all the different guests you have, my friends on. It's really great to have these stories and these personalities. I appreciate you and your background and all the stuff you've done. Uh, well, we don't you. have too many people that smart in our industry. We, we need a few <laughs> adults you. in our. We need a few adults in our industry. Really, that's what I say. Uh, well, we're <laughs> an industry full of misfits. You know, we would would chop each other's arm off to get first tracks and. Uh, <laughs> Nice to have somebody with a brain sitting behind there, like putting that into perspective. So appreciate you and what you're doing. And thanks a lot. Well, I appreciate you saying all that. I'm blushing. And uh, yeah, Dan, it's great talking to you today. Thank you so much for being here. Have a great rest of your day. You too, my friend. Thank you so much for listening to the Snow Brains podcast. If you liked this podcast, please share with your friends and family and please subscribe. To find out more about Snowbrains, please visit us at snowbrains.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Snowbrains. This episode of the Snowbrains podcast was edited by Jared White and Ben Hout. Music by Chad Crouch. I'm your host, producer, and creator, Miles Clark. <laughs>